welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. I have just two items of housekeeping before we get into today's message. Uh, one is I just wanted to follow up on what Pastor Brent shared about that series on um, how to hear God. Uh, you know, we're in a series right now called When God Spoke, which is focused on what, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but what God spoke through the Son, through Jesus Christ. And then, but we also believe that God's still speaking today, and that's for all of us to learn how to discern his voice. And to learn how to discern the ways in which God reveals himself, that's at the heart of that series that's going to launch on Easter Sunday. And we wanted that to be a series that everybody goes through together because we believe that the church is best when everybody is, is paying attention, is being attentive to the voice of God and learning how to not only hear but to respond. And so it's not just for our, our leaders or for our staff or for our pastors. That's for all of us. And that's why we wanted to do that series. And we're, I'm so excited. I, I really believe that this is something God has for us. Just to clarify one point of, of um, clarity. For, can I do that? Can I define a word with a word? <laughs> this is a point of clarity, though. We're, we're going to be going through Pete Gregg's book. And that's going to be the, the kind of the organizing structure for a seven-week series. We're not like treating his book as scripture. We'll still be in scripture every single Sunday. That's the way he's written the book. But what he does is he traces different ways that God speaks and he shows those stories in scripture. And so that's how what, when we come on Sunday mornings, we'll, we will be in God's word every day. Um, and throughout the week, we'll be discussing that book and having a chance to meet together to process it together. That's our hope is that we can have groups where we're gathering with other people, other believers to encourage one another, to hear one another's experiences, to, see, to, to answer questions or to process questions together. So um, I'm very excited we have that. So there you go. So out there, that's going to be available on Sunday. And what an exciting thing to invite guests into on Easter Sunday as well. Uh, we're going to give them a copy of the book, whether they choose to stick around and go through the study or not. Uh, it's, it's a seed. It's a little kingdom seed that we're, we're investing. Um, but we're also going to invite people into those spaces with us to go through it together. So I'm excited that we get to be a, a people who are teachable uh, and continuing to grow, regardless of how long we've walked with Jesus, that we get to be a, a, a teachable people. So that's one part. The second thing I wanted to do is I wanted to point out this painting we have here. Uh, if you, yeah, thank you for it. If we get our camera zoomed in on that. This is something, if you were here about three weeks ago, I think, we actually had, this was painted live. Uh, one of our local artists, uh, Mike Oglesby. Where's Mike's right over here? Mike, can you wave everybody? Um, Mike painted that for us live. And then he took it home and worked on it, as artists often do. They're often want to keep changing things and tweaking things. And, and, uh, and so this is the final edition of it. But I just want to speak to what it is because what Mike was doing for us is he was um, giving kind of a, a visual and an artistic rendering of a prayer that emerged out of a time of worship and prayer on one of our weekday mornings when we were just gathered over here for, for prayer. And we were praying into locally the stories of what we hear God doing around the world and around our nation. We hear about these, these places where there's pockets of intense 
uh, activity of, of just divine presence where God is awakening people, stirring people. There's, whether you want to call it revival or repentance or outpouring, there's all kinds of human language we can try to describe to it. But at the end of the day, it's God is at work doing a new thing in the emerging generations. And our heart was to say, we want to be a part of that. And so our heart was to say, may we be a people who are, first of all, filled with God's presence ourselves, that we are filled and transformed and changed. But may that filling keep pouring until, until it overflows to other people. And so I love what Mike did here. He captured like a vessel, but the vessel's made out of upstretched hands that are, that are open to what God wants to do. But the, but the vessel's not, it's not contained. It's not like it caps off at the top of the vessel. It's spilling out the sides. It's pouring over the top and it's pouring out and it's reaching people and places. And wherever it goes, people have a choice. Will they, will they allow themselves to be enveloped in that or will they resist it? And those who resist, it will just go around them. And those who welcome it, it will permeate and saturate and transform their lives. And so um, that's our prayer. And that's a visual depiction of the prayer. So can we thank Mike again for that? What a wonderful job. I love that in this church, we get to so often see uh, the creativity uh, of our creator expressed um, by, by people, by uh, professional artists, by budding artists. And, um, you know, Danica and our Vine Arts team does an amazing job empowering that. And um, I love that about our church. So there you go. Well, um, this morning we are continuing a series that's going to carry us right up to Easter. And it's called When God Spoke. And um, I think the, the heart of it is really captured in the, the opening line of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is in what the part of the, of the Bible we call the New Testament. We have the, oftentimes we have Old Testament and New Testament. That's basically the Hebrew scriptures and then everything uh, that includes Jesus' life and, and, every, the, and the early church. That's typical of the New Testament. So Hebrews is a New Testament letter. And here's what the author of Hebrews says about the previous times that God has spoken. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Okay, so he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. All the stories we have here about God encounters where God was revealing himself to people, right? So in the past, God has spoken in many times, many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. He is the reflection of God's glory. That's a powerful statement. He's the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. We would say he made the invisible God visible. He is the exact imprint of God's very being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And when he had made purification for sins, this is an important phrase for us this morning. When he'd made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You hear, hear these descriptors, superior, more excellent, better. And what we have in this, this time that God spoke through his son, through, and we talk about God speaking through his son, we're talking about everything about Jesus' earthly life, the wholeness of the, the entirety of the incarnation from his arrival, the fact that God even put on flesh and became human, the incarnation, and everything in between. It's, the, it's his ministry, it's his teaching, it's his death, it's his resurrection. So all of that is God speaking a better word a more superior word, a more excellent word. 
And as we look at that, the author of Hebrews, he's not, he's not invalidating what, what came before, saying that what came before was bad and now what we have is good. What he's saying is what we had before was, was partial and what we have now is complete. It's as, if, it's as if God spoke a word that was one-dimensional and his revelation and here, all the previous ways that God has revealed himself were like one-dimensional, but Jesus shows up and it's three-dimensional. We get to touch him, hear him. And he shows us things that we wouldn't have known. So today what we're going to be talking about is when God spoke a better commandment. Here's our title for this morning. When God spoke a better commandment. Now, in this context, which is, you know, a gathering of people for a, a you know, a sermon is this part. Uh, when I say commandment, what do you think of? The, the Ten Commandments, Right? It's, it's not a word that we use a whole lot outside of, in terms of 21st century, it's not a word we use a whole lot, but when we talk about commandments or 10 commandments, that's what we think of. So again, we have an artistic rendering of the 10 commandments we'll put up here. Uh, let me say this, this is not, a, is not a picture of the first 10 commandments. We know that for, for two reasons. One, it's in English, right? The original 10 commandments were not in our alphabet, and also, the original Ten Commandments were actually destroyed almost immediately after being created. And so, so this is not a picture of the first one, but what it is, is it's a faithful rendering of what was actually written there. And so just take a moment to take those in. If you haven't read them recently, take a moment to read those Ten Commandments. There's lots of thou shalt nots isn't there? There's like eight thou shalt nots and two thou shall. Obviously, they were written in King James. So here's the origin story. Exodus 20, we find the origin story for the Ten Commandments. We find that initially they were spoken. They were given as an oral commandment uh, to Moses in Exodus 20. But then in addition to that, they were also written. And we find out about that in Exodus 31. Exodus 31 puts it this way. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Inscribed by the finger of God. So there it is. That's the description. They were given orally. They were given written. And when they were given written, they were given in this form that is chiseled in stone. They're fixed and unchanging. I, it's interesting that God didn't say, well, Moses, um, you know, we're starting this whole thing together, me and Israel as my people. Uh, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Let's have some agreements about what this looks like. Let's pencil it out. Let's just kind of write it in rough draft copy. And, and we'll put it in pencil, and then we can go back and we can amend it and figure out what works and what doesn't work. You know, we can edit and adjust. He didn't do that. He gave it written in stone. The rules that God gave were unflinchingly rigid, as were the consequences for disobedience. It's as if God said, okay, here are the boundaries that I have created you to live within. Thou shalt not, 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 and a couple of thou shalt. Basically said, live inside of that. If you overstep those boundaries, I'm giving you some boundaries that are in line with how I've made you to live. As your creator, I have designed you to live a certain way. If you live within those boundaries, it will go well with you. 
if you step outside of those boundaries, it won't go well for you, right? That's, that's essentially what he said. So we find out in, in, um, in the New Testament, we find Jesus saying that all of those are summed up. Actually, those 10 commandments are summed up in two commandments. They're love God and love people, right? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So the 10 commandments are really just fleshing out the two commandments, love God and love people. So that's the background for today's passage in which we see God speaking a better commandment through the life of Jesus. And again, it's not a replacement commandment. It's not to invalidate what came before. It's a fuller expression of that commandment. We're going to take a look at that this morning. So we're going to pick up in John chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. Okay, let's pause right there before we get into this story and address something that's probably, if, you're, if, you're in your, if you've got a physical Bible with you today and you're reading it, you'll probably notice there's an asterisk there or a footnote, or possibly you're reading in an app, likely have the same asterisk. So something to the effect of this story, John 8, 1 through 11, is not in all of the earliest manuscripts of the book of John. So let me explain that. Let me explain why, that's, why it says that and what we make of that. So uh, historically, uh, we have you know, several collections. Uh, our oldest collections of, um, of the book of John and the book of Luke, for example, these are gospels. They were written documents originally, written on scrolls. And um, in order to create the scriptures we have today, we always go back to the original the documents. And as uh, over time, archaeologists find more and more of those documents. And so the more that we have, the more accurate we, we can make sure that this is, you know, is, and it's not being passed on like a telephone game and being corrupted, you know, generation by generation. So in the earliest manuscripts of John, this is inconsistent in where it shows up. This story, sometimes it shows up right here, and we have it in John chapter 8 in most Bibles, John 8, 1 through 11. Sometimes it shows up just a little bit earlier in what we have is, is John chapter 7. Sometimes it comes at the end of the book of John, almost like a postscript. And sometimes it doesn't show up in John at all. Sometimes it shows up in Luke. And so the question is, what do we, what do we make of that? And basically the consensus among biblical scholars and, and archaeologists is that this was considered uh, authentic gospel material. The early church said this is, in fact, a true story of, of an encounter that Jesus had one day, uh, and, it, and it's an authentic uh, gospel encounter, authentic uh, gospel story, but that neither John or Luke chose to include it in their, you know, their gospel. The gospels, they're not, they're not holistic teachings of everything that happened in Jesus' life. In fact, John ends his book by saying that. John ends by saying, hey, I've just selected a few stories from Jesus to tell you. If I told you all of them, there's not enough books in the whole world. John wrote before the World Wide Web exists. So, so he's like, so it's a little bit of hyperbole, but it's right after he says that that some people insert it right there. They insert this story right there right after he said there's more stories, for example. So the, original, the, the early church decided that this was an authentic gospel encounter, but that because the early, those, those two writers hadn't included it in their books, they inserted it where they thought it most likely could fit because they wanted it to be passed on to future generations like us because it's authentic gospel material. And there's nothing in it that, that um, adds something new that we didn't already know, but it's a perfect encapsulation of the gospel. Okay, so that's how we're going to study it today. Um, so here's the thing. That brings a distinction. That means we don't know the literary context for this particular story. 
When I say literary context, that means we don't know exactly where it fits in the biblical literature. That's why it shows up in multiple different places or sometimes not at all. We don't know the literary context, but we actually do know the historical context, which means we know when this happened during Jesus' earthly life. There's actually a clue right there in that first paragraph that we just looked at. It says that um, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. That is a pattern in Jesus' ministry during one specific week of his life. You know, most of Jesus' earthly ministry, most of it didn't take place in Jerusalem, which was in the southern part of Israel. Most of it took place in the north, up and around the region of Galilee. And, but, but there's one week in particular where he was spent the whole week in Jerusalem during the daytime, teaching at the temple. And during the evening, he would leave the city proper and spend the night either on the Mount of Olives or in the town of Bethany with some of his closest friends. Do you know when that was? It's the, it's the final week of his life. It's the week in between what we call Palm Sunday or, or the triumphal entry where we see him entering into Jerusalem and he's welcomed like, a, like a, a, a hero. In between that and the crucifixion on Friday, the pattern of Jesus' earthly, of his life that week is that he would be in the temple during the day and out of the hill during the night. This is Luke 21, put it this way. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So that's why some of the earliest scribes actually put the story we're reading. Some of them put it right here because it follows that pattern of when he was sleeping outside Jerusalem during the evening and teaching in the temple during the day. Okay, back to our text. John 8. So Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple and a crowd soon gathered. I want to talk about that word crowd. If this is in fact the Passion Week, the week in between Jesus' triumphal entry and the crucifixion, it's also what? It's Passover, which means that the Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem would just swell during Passover week because pilgrims, faithful pilgrims from all over the, the world would come to Jerusalem to observe and to celebrate Passover. So, so the population of Jerusalem would swell to multiple times its normal population. So when it says there's a crowd here, it's not just the normal Jerusalem crowd, this is people who've come from all over. And who exactly are these pilgrims, these spiritual pilgrims who've come to celebrate Passover? They're, they're people who are very interested in keeping God's commandments, right? And the, God gave a commandment that he says, when I appoint a place for you, when it comes time to celebrate the Passover year, every year, I want you to come and celebrate it in the place that I appoint for you. So these people that are, that are making long and expensive journeys to come and, and maybe once in a lifetime to get to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, they're people who are organizing their lives around keeping the commandments of God. Okay? They're spiritually faithful people who have a hunger for that. So on this particular morning, the temple courtyard is crowded during Passover week and all the people are trying to hear this young popular rabbi who Potentially, he's a messianic figure. He Potentially, he's, he's the Messiah they've been waiting for. And so the whole crowd's gathered. And as he's speaking to them, there's a commotion in the crowd. Here's what happens. 8.3. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, when they say law of Moses, what are they talking about? 
Ten Commandments specifically. Okay, law of Moses is a broad term. Specific, most specifically, it refers to the Ten Commandments. And as it refers to her, there, which, do you remember which, which one it was on the list? Number seven was thou shalt not commit adultery. And so they're, in the, most specifically, they're talking about that one. But they're also talking about the Ten Commandments. And they're also talking about the fact that throughout the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Scripture, throughout the Torah, that those, those 10 laws get extrapolated into about 613 laws by most counts. 613 uh, extrapolations of what it means to not commit adultery. Because on the surface, it, not committing adultery is, is one thing, but specifically it's, it's, it's so much broader. What, is, what does sexual integrity look like in terms of the way that God designed creation to live? And so that, for example, that gets fleshed out. So... She's accused of breaking the commandment regarding adultery. And the, uh, the penalty that they're referencing is found in the book of Moses in Leviticus 20 and 22, uh, Deuteronomy 22, for example. Um, by the way, both of those passages that talk about when someone is caught in adultery, it doesn't just address the female. The male is addressed as well. Both parties are addressed. So let's just pause there. And let's consider this woman who has just been put on display in front of a, a, a religiously zealous crowd that have gathered for religious reasons in Jerusalem. This woman has been gruffly placed in front of them and her story has been told. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses says that she's to be stoned to death. What do you say? What do you think? Just take a moment. What do you think she's feeling? Here's the question. What do you imagine she's experiencing in this moment? Condemnation. Shame. Fright. Fear. Yes. Guilt. Guilt, fear, condemnation, shame. Rejection. Unworthiness. Kind of, We've got a lot of human anger, a lot of human experience right here. I categorized it, I, I think you guys said everything I thought of, I categorized it in a couple ways. I think she's probably experiencing shame and humiliation. Again, this is a highly public and crowded moment. I, this is probably, on this day in Israel, this is the most public and most visible crowd in all of Jerusalem, in all of Israel, right? We saw that. So it's, it's very public. Um, so there's shame and humiliation. I think there's, there's guilt and regret. Um, do you notice that she hasn't said anything yet? Here's, this is interesting. She's not yet said anything, but she, what she hasn't done, she hasn't protested her innocence. She hasn't said, hey, this is, this is a lie. I didn't do this. So the, the, in all likelihood, and Jesus treats this as something that, that really happened. She is, she's guilty of what she's been accused of. If caught in the very act, she might have been held captive since then. And therefore, she might be immodestly dressed at this moment. These men that have brought her to Jesus, they don't show much interest in protecting her in any way. And so it's entirely possible that she's dressed immodestly at this point. I think the regret is, is she's probably thinking like, if only she could change what just happened. Have you ever had one of those moments where something played out with much bigger consequences than you were prepared to pay? And you thought, if I could just turn back the clock and just do that over, I would do it so differently. I think she's got to be having deep regret about 
what she's done. And yeah, and then lastly, I think she's experiencing fear and terror. Understand, this woman is in real danger right here. In addition to being publicly shamed and humiliated, she's actually in real danger. And remember, this is the worst possible timing for her to get caught in something like this. Large crowds have gathered and they're surging with, with religious zeal. And these, these men that have brought her, they're, they're like playing with fire. They're potentially inciting mob violence. This, this is a moment that could very easily turn into mob violence. That's, that's not out of question here. I mean, think, this is the week of Jesus' crucifixion. Look what the mob did. Mob violence is not out of the question. Okay, back to the text. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, the meaning the religious leaders, they were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. And now the author tells us that this isn't really about her. This is not about, about religious zeal or justice. This is a trap and she's simply the bait. She's the cheese. Jesus is the rat they're trying to catch. And she's the cheese. They're not treating her as a person. They're treating her as a prop, a means to an end. They're treating her as disposable and expendable. We know, it's a, we know it was a trap, that it wasn't really about the issue. Because why? Because the guy's not there. If they were really interested in just religious purity and observance, then they would have both parties there. This has led some commentators to, to question, and this is purely speculation, but to wonder if maybe this was a trap that they actually offered the man um, immunity if he would help them trap Jesus by, by setting this whole thing up. Speculation. So what's the trap? The trap is that they've created a no-win scenario. They've created a no-win scenario for Jesus in which there's really no right way to answer. Because if he, if he extends forgiveness, which they've seen him do previously, and they're not very happy about that, they've seen Jesus be so presumptuous as to say, your sins are forgiven to people. And, and they've said, who, but, who alone but God can forgive sins? And so if he acts on that kind of arrogance again and forgives her, well, they can expose him to this religiously zealous crowd as somebody who doesn't really uphold the commandments. He doesn't care about the commandments. He doesn't care about the law of Moses that we've been passed on for generations. And so they can expose him in front of the crowd. If he sticks with what Moses says, which is in fact the letter of the law says she's to be stoned. If he does that and sides with law and scripture and its consequences, they can accuse him of sedition to Rome. Because at this point, Israel is under Rome's authority and uh, and Rome has withheld capital punishment. Jerusalem, they, they, the, the Jews can't put somebody to death. Only the Romans can do that. And so if he incites this crowd to mob violence, they can blame Jesus. So essentially what they're doing is they're making him choose between displeasing the crowd and displeasing their Roman occupiers. He can either flaunt the law of Moses or he can flaunt the law of Rome. What do you think he's writing? Again, this, this is a fun passage because it leaves room for some, like, speculation. And, of course, there's been a lot of speculation about what Jesus was writing. 
Some people have speculated that he's writing down other sins in addition to adultery. Some people have speculated that he's writing down names of people that are standing right there in the crowd who have also been unfaithful to their marriage. Right? Some people have speculated that he's just doodling to buy time. He's like, he's not sure how to respond. This is a tricky one. Like, what am, what am I going to do? Do you know that, interestingly, a little bit of research, I spent some time on this this week. Do you know Peter, St. Peter, had Instagram? He did. Peter was one of the very first users of Instagram. He actually captured this moment, and he actually wrote for us what Jesus was writing. Look at this. Not, not WWJD, what, WWID. Jesus is like, what would I do? What will I do? It goes along with the whole idea of him buying time. I think that my, our best guess, and the reason I showed that scripture from Exodus 30 that says that God inscribed the Ten Commandments, they were inscribed with the finger of God, I think he's alluding to the fact that the Ten Commandments were inscribed by the finger of God. And, and, and the fact is, there's more than just the Seventh Commandment. Maybe he drew a picture of the Ten Commandments, something recognizable. They would all go, oh, that's the Ten Commandments. That's the stone tablets. Maybe he was writing the first word of each of the commandments. We're not sure, but whatever he writes, paired with the things that he speaks, it creates a seismic shift in the whole crowd in the moment. Let's know what happens. When they heard it, when they heard him say, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Pay attention to that phrase. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Who said con condemnation? Somebody said condemnation. Yeah. Who has condemned you? Verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Yeah, this is a better commandment. Scene comes to an end, and what was literally moments ago the most public moment in all of Israel becomes the most private. It becomes incredibly intimate. It's 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 one on one. It's Jesus standing face to face with a woman, and there's a couple surprises in this story. The first surprise is that Jesus evaded the question, like he dodged this whole thing for now. Jesus is. Jesus is in control of his destiny. He is going to lay down his life. No one's going to take it before he's ready. And so it's not that Jesus is, is scared of what awaits him in a few days, he's, but he's choosing the time. He will lay down his life. But he dodges their no-win scenario. This is his Kobayashi Maru, and he doesn't cheat. He doesn't, he doesn't cheat. That's one surprise. The second surprise is that she stays. Second surprise is that this woman who's no longer being held by gruff hands in front of Jesus stays in front of him. Formerly, she was held captive by these men and captive by the condemnation of her guilt, what she'd done, what the law said, what, what the future held for her. 
She was held captive by that. Now she's still captive, but no longer by condemnation, but by forgiveness. This is, this is not what she's expecting. I have no idea what this, what this woman was expecting, but we can put ourselves in her shoes and think, what would, what would she have expected in this moment where she's brought to this crowd teeming with religious zeal, placed in front of a rabbi who's a spiritual teacher, and he gets to, to give the verdict on what should happen to her? This is not what she's expecting. I don't know what she's, she's not expecting this. Because this is, well, this is a better commandment. Jesus says something really powerful and completely transformative here. He says it in two parts. So the first part is he says, I don't condemn you for your failure. To condemn, this, this word in, in scripture, it is to give judgment against or to judge something or someone as worthy of punishment. Condemnation, condemn. She's, here's the thing. She's not protesting her innocence. So is she in fact worthy of judgment? Is, has she been judged worthy of punishment? Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And you, you realize what he did. He also silenced the other voices that are condemning her. There's all kinds of voices that are trying to condemn this woman. They're speaking condemnation, shame, humiliation, guilt, fear, all those adjectives we just came up with. He has silenced all of the voices. And he says, not only am I silencing them, I don't condemn you. The question is, how can he say that? I mean, this is audacious. This, again, this is what the religious leaders wanted to stone Jesus for because who besides God can forgive sin? So it tells us a couple things. One, well, he is God because he can forgive sin. He can remove the condemnation. But what he doesn't say, there's something he doesn't say right here because this is like, you know what, hours before the cross. The cross hasn't happened yet. Easter hasn't happened. Good Friday hasn't happened. Resurrection Sunday hasn't happened. And so what he doesn't say to her in this moment is that he's not condemning her because he's going to take his condem- her condemnation upon himself. He's not dismissing her condemnation. He's transferring it. Do you realize this is a, this is a revelation of our God? He said, I'm not dismissing your condemnation. That wouldn't be just. I can't just pretend it never happened, but I can take it upon myself. He doesn't dismiss it. He's transferring it. When Jesus goes to the cross in a matter of hours, a few days from now, this is, one of the most re- this is, this is being, going to be one of the last transactions that he had, one of the last encounters he had, one of the things that steals his heart to walk through something that no one would ever want to walk through. And it's out of what? It's out of love for her. He said, I'm going to take your place. I'm going to take your condemnation upon myself. And, she, and, and it happens in such a personal transaction. She's standing alone in front of him and she has a choice to make. Will she allow him to take her condemnation? That's the first part he says. That's part one but he's not done. The second part he says is, don't keep living like you've been living. He says, go your way and sin no more. Don't keep doing what you've been doing. Don't, don't just keep doing that, that same thing over and over and, and assuming that you'll just be forgiven because there's consequences. Every boundary that God gave us to live within was for our good. Our culture has forgotten that. Even when it comes to commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
that this place of sexual intimacy is reserved for the, the covenant relationship, a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that is, it brings harm. We've talked about it as a fireplace, that, that the fire, a fire is a beautiful thing contained in a fireplace. Take it outside of the fire, it brings incredible destruction. He says, go your way and sin no more. Start living within the commandment. Understand this, Jesus is not lowering the standard. The better commandment isn't that Jesus lowered the standard or erased what was carved into stone. He didn't wink at God's boundaries. He wasn't dismissive of them. He didn't set them aside and say, well, we've, we've grown past that. He said, I'm going to keep your commandment. So Jesus, the, the reason that Jesus can die on the cross and, and take her condemnation instead of his own, he never did anything to deserve condemnation. He lived a perfect, righteous, sinless life. He's kept the commandment and he can take her place. He can take our place. So here's this, so if I could summarize it like this. He can say the first part because of the cross. He can say the first part, like, I don't condemn you because at the cross, he's going to transfer her condemnation. He can say the second part because of the resurrection. Because the resurrection, he, he, he said, resurrection life is now available and it can begin right now. You can learn to live a different way. You can learn to live an obedient life within the commandments. He can say, go your way and sin no more because he knows what's waiting. He knows the resurrection's coming. There's power. The, 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 the gospel of Titus or the, the letter of Titus puts the gospel very simply like this. It says, the grace of God has now appeared, bringing salvation for all people, anyone who will accept it, training us, which is a training. This is a, a process. Training us to renounce ungodliness and to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly training us to walk away from ungodliness and into godliness. And, and this, is, this is the Christian life until he comes back. He says, this is what we're doing. We're doing this until the, the hope of our great glory and Savior Jesus Christ appears again. He redeemed us from lawlessness to purify a people for himself who are zealous for good deeds. He can say the first part, you're not condemned because of the cross. He can say the second part, go and start living differently because of resurrection power unleashed in our life. Titus 2, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. That's to purchase us. To purchase us from condemnation, from guilt, from the, the enslaving power of sin. And to purify people of his own for zealous for good deeds. So here's how we close today. Jesus was sent by God as the exact imprint of his very being. Jesus was sent to show us a better commandment, a fuller revelation. Mankind already knew God's standard, how he designed us to live, how he designed us to thrive. He showed us what things, we already knew what were outside the boundaries. What we didn't know until Jesus was how God's love would drive him to rescue those condemned by their failures. What we didn't know until Jesus' appearance, until his incarnation, is how God's love would drive him to rescue those condemned by their failures. We didn't know how he would empower those who received his forgiveness to begin living differently this side of eternity. Not waiting to be perfected someday, but, but beginning to live differently this side of eternity. We're going to spend just our closing moments doing a little bit of application today. And here's what I want to invite you to do. Um, I want to ask you if you're here on campus 
Uh, if you're able to, would you stand with me for a moment? And if, if in a moment you want to sit down, you're welcome to. If you're, if you're not gathering on campus, if you're gathering online, I'd encourage you to do the same. Maybe shift a position. And we're lowering the lights right now, and I'm going to suggest that I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to lead you through five questions. I'm going to suggest it might be easiest for you to respond to these questions personally by closing your eyes. That's why we're, we're softening the lights and we're just going to have an alone moment because here's what I think God has for each of us. We get to place ourselves in the side of the story and we get to stand in front of Jesus one-on-one, just like this woman did. Can I invite you to do that? Whatever's going to be helpful for you to be alone with Jesus, to, to leave the crowded moment and have a private moment with Jesus Christ. If you need to close your eyes, you can do that. But let the other people dissipate. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit just to speak to us. God's already present. I'm not inviting him to show up. I'm inviting him to speak to us in a way that we can hear. What we're about to do, this applying the story and taking it into our lives, that's a work of the Holy Spirit on every level, whether it's conviction, whether it's forgiveness, whether it's empowerment, all of that. Those are manifestations of the Holy Spirit that is available because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Holy Spirit, would you come We need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to each and every person, those gathered here on campus, those gathered online. May the words that that we hear today be your words, not my words. Would you give each one of us hearts to respond to you, ears to hear you? So question number one, standing before Jesus. Imagine it's you instead of this woman. What is it that Jesus sees? Maybe when you looked at that list of commandments today, there was some that stood out to you. Maybe there's things that that you're stuck in that cyclically bring you shame, condemnation, guilt, fear. Jesus sees you as you truly are. He sees you and knows you better than you know yourself. And the story tells us that he loves you so much that you can stand before him in the moment of your deepest shame and feel absolutely safe. It's so amazing that this woman didn't just hightail it out of there. That's because she was captured by love. Holy Spirit, will you help us to receive your love that is apart from anything we've done or not done? that your love for us was manifested in this, that you, you gave your life while we were yet sinners. 
under Jesus' gaze, what are the things from your life that prompt you to feel shame and humiliation, guilt and regret, fear and terror? Question number two, what voices are speaking out condemnation over you? Sometimes it's the voices outside. Sometimes it's our own voice accusing us. Sometimes it's the voice of the enemy bringing accusation. Usually it shows up with all-encompassing language. You're never going to do any different. You've always been this way. That's a voice of condemnation. You're never going to change. You're always a failure. What voices are speaking condemnation over you? Question number three, will you allow Jesus to carry your condemnation to the cross? In the coming weeks, we're moving towards Easter. We're going to be really focused on the cross this Easter. Will you let Jesus personally carry your condemnation? That's the guilt, that's the shame, that's the consequences. Will you allow him to carry it? to transfer your guilt to himself. If you see Jesus do this for you, it will cause you to fall in love with Jesus in a deeper way. To the degree that we realize what he's done for us personally, as we personally stand in front of him, that's what causes our, lo- our hearts to soften and grow in love towards him. Love is a much more powerful motivator than fear. Jesus didn't motivate this woman with fear not with fear, not with condemnation. He motivated her with love. Will you allow Jesus to carry your condemnation away to his cross? Fourth question. Will you respond to Jesus' instruction and empowerment to learn a different way of living? To hear Jesus say to you, go your way today. I don't condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Learn what it means to live in my resurrection power. Learn what it means to live a life of empowering grace. Learn to grow in this training. Forgiven by grace and empowered by grace. For some, listening today maybe on campus, maybe online, some, this may be the moment of your salvation. This may be the moment where you personally respond to Jesus, not just as somebody who's spiritually curious or somebody who's religious, but you're standing in front of Jesus and for the first time allowing what he did on the cross and at the empty tomb to to be the foundation of your life, to be the foundational reality of your life. Jesus is asking you, will you you allow me? This fourth question of will you respond to Jesus' instruction and his empowerment to learn a different way of living, this is a resolution that we can make today to say, Jesus, will you teach me Will you set me free and teach me? 
a different way of living. My last question for you today is, what will you do as you go home? Jesus said, go. Last words he said to her, go and sin no more. I don't know what she did. I wonder if she had a close friend that she could go and tell, do you know what just happened to me? Some of you may need to go and tell a a close and trusted friend, this is what God stirred in me today and what I'm resolving to do. How I'm resolving to live differently. How I've, I've experienced Jesus freeing me from the condemnation that I've heard spoken over my life. Some of you may need to get prayer. We have some words for prayer that we're going to put up on the screen today. Things that our ministry team sensed God uh, wanting to, to do today. Um, there's some, some physical things. Shin splints, plantar fasciitis. This phrase, you're not a cripple. Breathe me in. Listen. God is whispering. And your healing comes suddenly. Those are all things that our prayer team, ministry team, sensed specifically for this morning from God. If you see yourself there, you can come up and let somebody pray with you. I want to challenge you. Some of you, as we are walking through this passage today, recognize this is something that you've been struggling with for a long time. You've either been struggling with the condemnation or you've been struggling with the desire or the capacity to obey. You know what God's calling you to do. And you want today to mark a a difference If that's you, I want to encourage you to come and receive prayer. To have a a brother or sister agree with you in that and speak it out. There's power in confessing, this is what God's doing in me. Don't Don't just take it home privately. Some of you may do that in the form of journaling. Maybe you need to go home and just spend some time writing. Go for a walk out in this beautiful creation today. Spend some time talking to Jesus. And some of you may need to change something. Some of you know you need to go home and you need to change something. But there's something you need to do in order to be, in order to walk out this freedom that Jesus has just offered you. He said, I don't condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And you know I need to go change something. I suspect this lady needed to go and change a relationship. She needed to go and tell, tell somebody, we're done. I'm not going to live this way any longer. I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to live within the boundaries that he said these are good. So what do you need to do today? Jesus, I'm so grateful that the early church preserved this story for us. That they caught that this hadn't been captured in the other gospels and preserved this beautiful story of this encounter you had with one person. Thank you how we, for how we see the gospel, the whole gospel, 
Jesus, thank you for not winking at our sin, but also not condemning us. Thank you for bringing the commandment to life, for bringing a better commandment of showing us a different way than ignoring the commandments or living in despair. Holy Spirit, will you continue to speak to each one of us? Continue to show us what it looks like to to walk in the grace of your training. Would you break cycles of addiction? Would you give us new patterns? From this moment, may we establish new patterns of righteousness, patterns of obedience that bring life. Jesus, we ask this for your, for your glory. We ask this for our abundant life, for, for our fullness of life. And we ask this for the sake of others, the people we live with, the people we do life with, the people we carry your name to. We're just going to close today with with that, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like prayer this morning, you can come up front. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, uh, you can come up front. If you don't want somebody to come with you, you just want to stay where you are, you can do that. If you've got kids, you can go pick up your kids. Um, there's also, this morning, remember, we have a, a, a newcomer's lunch. If you're new or wanting to get connected, newcomer's lunch right, at, right now uh, over in um, Auditorium 2, just off the office lobby. And we also have books available and groups available that today you can go out and get signed up for a group as we uh, move towards Easter and learning how to better discern God's voice. All right, church, go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.